Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at this wonderful Messianic Psalm and, and we just see the beauty of the marriage of the King of the universe in, in this Psalm. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 45. This is, I knew this was a Messianic Psalm and the more I studied, the more excited I got as I studied this one. This is the marriage of the King of the universe. In this song. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's it's called by many marriage song in honor of the peerless king. And the one of the study books I looked at. So we're gonna look at this. Let's, we're gonna read the whole thing and then we're gonna start looking at it. Verse one. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is a pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O most mighty, with your glory and with... And in thy majesty ride prosperously. Speak of truth and meekness and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you terrible things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the enemy, the people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is, is a right scepter. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloe and cassia, out of the ivy palaces, strings they have made you glad. King's daughters were among the honorable women. Upon your right hand did, did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. Forget also your own people and your father's house. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty, for he is your lord and worship you him. The daughter of terror shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is wrought gold, of gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of, needle, of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of your father shall be your children whom you may make promise in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. So this, this is broken up into three sections. It's the, 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 king, the, 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 the prince, the one that's going to be married, the bride, and then the marriage. So we want to, we want to start looking at this. Verse 1. My heart is indicting, and this is to put in words, move with compassion, a good matter. I speak of things which I have made, touching the kings. My tongue is a pen of a ready writer. This is, this is the, the writer of this psalm saying, uh, I'm ready to speak. I can't help but speak. Have you ever been to a place where you just can't help but say what God wants you to say? I've been there many times where, where you just have to speak. Uh, Isaiah talked of his tongue burning in him uh, to speak. Jeremiah said many times, I will not speak anymore, but God burned so much in me, I could not choose to do otherwise. And this is what's starting this level is I've got to speak forth, I've got to go forward. Now we start in the description of the, of, the, of the king. You are fairer than the children of men. Talking about the beauty, talking about the grace. Okay, you are fairer than the children of men. So he's the, he's the, the most beautiful, the most, the most fair. The, you know, this is talking about Jesus. It says, grace is poured into your lips. This is beautiful because this idea of grace and this pouring is to pour liquid metal into a cast. Grace is poured into Jesus and strengthening him. The grace of God strengthens him. And it says, therefore God has blessed you forever. Going into verse 3, gird your sword upon your thigh, O most mighty, 
with your glory and your majesty. Gird your sword. What is the sword of God? The word. The word. His word. He's saying, gird your sword on your on your thigh. You know, beautiful picture here of Jesus, the the master, the great king, getting ready for his wedding day. Getting ready for his wedding day in this in this in this uh, chapter. And it says, O most mighty, your glory, your glory. Okay, when we talk about God's glory, it's so wonderful because it is his glory coming down. This is the same glory and majesty that it talks about Jesus coming down, uh, God coming down upon the tabernacle and the great cloud with the glory that was involved in it coming down on the tabernacle. And he says, your glory and your majesty. Now, think about the, majest the majesty of God, the majesty of Jesus, more than we can even think of. I mean, even when we think about the most beautiful scene we've ever seen personally or seen in a picture, you know, and we talk about the, the majesty, you talk about the, if you go to the Grand Canyon, how beautiful and how big it is and how majestic it is, and it's nothing compared to the majesty and glory of God. Uh, and it says, you, you know, put on your sword, you're almost holy with glory and majesty. Very powerful, you know, as we look at this, about what God is getting ready to do. Verse 4, and in your majesty, ride prosperously. And this prosperously is quickly. <laughs> it's, it, this is, it has the, the idea of quickness involved with this. Uh, in your majesty, ride quickly, speak of truth and majesty and meekness and righteousness. Okay, meekness, that humility, the, the idea of meekness. Now, that doesn't mean weak, it just means humble. Moses was, was said to be the meekest man there was. And we all know that Moses oftentimes was a very angry and brash and harsh person. Okay. We don't know anybody like that. <laughs> and the other person that is considered meek or the meekest of all is Jesus. He came in meekly. And yet we know that he could get in the face of the Pharisees and the scribes and went into the temple and tossed tables around and, and, and chased people out with a whip. So meekness does not mean a wimp. <laughs> okay. Uh, and your righteousness and your truth. I always thought it sounds so mean when you went to the temple and pulled those tables because they were definitely a different picture that most people have of Jesus is this really kind of wimpy I mean you look at the pictures of Jesus he literally looks like a wimp in almost every picture you ever see of him or and I don't pitiful. believe that's or pitiful, yeah, pitiful. Uh, yeah. this guy was a guy that was a carpenter he was one who who moved woods you know big logs around and planed them down into things that could be made I mean he was not a weakling he, to me he reminds you of a um, graceful he was graceful so he was he would have been considered a man's man in his day. You know, he wasn't he wasn't a bully or anything, but he was a man's he was a man's man. He did what men did. He would he worked with his hands. He would have had calloused hands from working, you know, with all the tools and everything. Uh, so he was not he was not somebody who was just, you know, a weakling. He was but he was meek. He was willing to give in, you know, to to not cause problems, he was willing to let somebody else be right. You know, and this is something that's that is really a character of meekness. Now, if it's really not that important, I'm not going to sit there and argue. As, if I'm a meek person, I'm not going to argue with them to win just for the sake of winning an argument. Because right is very overrated. Yeah, it, 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 it really is. And, it, and we want to, there's certain things that are worth fighting yes. over. And Jesus proved that with the Pharisees. There were certain things worth saying you don't understand and this is not right but there were other places where he just said this isn't worth fighting over this is not worth this is not worth looking at and so it says go forth in your truth your firmness your stability your meekness and righteousness 
and your right hand shall teach you terrible things or awesome things. This, this Old English terrible is awesome, awesome thing, worthy of, worthy of awe. And again, right hand. We've talked about right hand. What does it mean when we say, when God uses the term right hand? Does anybody remember? Right hand man is on that topic. The side of approval, the side of the side of what is approved, what is what is what is what you're saying is good. And then and he brought that up because that's my example. We still have the term, this is my right hand man or or woman or girl. This is this is the one that I can't do without. They're they're the one I approve of. If they say something, they're basically speaking for me because we're that we're that tied together that I trust them that much that if they something they're speaking with my authority. I wonder where the right hand came from. Right hand man. Yep. I never thought of it that way. Right, it is a sign of approval in that in that in that uh, in that statement. Most people right Most people right handed, but it's it's that whole idea of this is this side this is who's approved. No, I used that with that really But it says, your right hand shall teach of awesome things, of awe-inspiring things. Okay. Verse, verse 4, into verse 4. So, so God, uh, chapter 45. Well, I, yeah, that I mean, I forgot which verse. Still on 4? Still on 4. <laughs> I've moved along quite quickly, and it's 15 minutes in, and I'm on verse 4. That's moving quick. <laughs> well... Know why I couldn't find you? Because I was reading eight and nine. Oh, okay. Here you go. You you were getting close. You were you were you were moving into the to the to the bride, getting into the bride. I know I was getting into. Verse five. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy, and this sharp literally means to be wet, to wet, to be sharpened. So it's even sharper than sharp. They're sharpening them as he's firing the arrows into his enemy, and it says and to the heart of it, and whereby the people fall under you. So he's victorious. You know, he's picturing a victorious prince or a victorious king. This is our Jesus that he's talking about, victory. The enemies fall at, at him. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. Again, an approved scepter. Okay. Uh, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. All right? He loves righteousness. God loves righteousness. It doesn't mean that he loves us more because we're righteous, but he loves righteousness and hates evil. It doesn't mean when we do evil that he's going to disband us, but he does not like the, the activity. We need to be in that same position where when we are in righteous situations, we rejoice. Mm -hmm. And when we're in wicked situations, we're getting away from it. We're pushing away from it. You know, and I've seen even Christians be the exact opposite. You know, they're around other righteous people and they get jealous and, and, and envious of them and they push them away rather than drawing close to the righteous because their heart is not right. And then they draw close to the wicked and say, you know, hey, this is okay. Uh, you know, I kind of, I'm better than you. I look good in your presence, so I'm going to draw close to you. And this is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be like Jesus, loving righteousness, hating evil. And then it says, I anoint you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Now, this one sounds good even without knowing what it means, I'm sure. But the oil of gladness is when they would sit down to a feast, at the beginning of the feast, they would take the, the people that were in high place in the feast and anoint them with what was called the anointing of gladness, the oil of gladness. They were in the chief seats, they were being elevated, they were being, they were being praised in one sense to be saying, this is the special guest, and they would pour the oil of, of gladness over them. This is, quite a, this is quite a statement. It's saying, here's the prince. He's getting ready for his marriages. We're getting ready to. And they anoint him with the special oil of gladness. 
Okay, so now every time you read oil of gladness in, in the scriptures, you're going to have a different picture of what oil of gladness means. Or sing the song. Or you sing the song. <laughs> yep. So this is a very interesting thing. Jesus at his, at his wedding is anointed with the oil of gladness. He's exalted above all others at his, at his wedding. At his wedding. All your gar garments smell of myrrh and aloe and cassia. Okay, now does anybody know, remember what the anointing oil in Exodus was made out of? Frankincense. Olive oil. Olive oil and myrrh, myrrh and cassia. Is that castor oil? No. No. <laughs> no. Cassia is, is a cinnamon type smelling herb. I was going to say, I hope so, because I smelled it just the other day of um, something that was in the other one, myrrh and frankincense. Frankincense yeah, is a bitter smelling thing. True frankincense, you know, uh, people's companies have made their version, made them a piece of it. The real frankincense is uh, it's a powerful smell. Uh, even in the bergamot, uh, if that's something familiar, frankincense is amazing. It's kind of like a forestry quality. smell that yeah, did it in the brazen altar. You get over the animal flesh. <laughs> they burned the frankincense. Or, you know. This is a high priced gift to my Lord when he was born. Their Lord. Emerge for. Uh, I expected more than a thousand my nerves stuff in. In real frankincense, you wouldn't have. Yeah. It's awesome. You were bringing up that these were Jesus' things. Myrrh. Was for burial. Yes. Frankincense is for the for your life and a strong, a strong smell. And it's part of what remember frankincense was put on the showbread, yes. was sprinkled on the showbread, and the, the poor priest got to eat frankincense frankincense bread. <laughs> that was interesting to me. As many times as we read that, um, and I, I when we read, they ate it. Now, as much as I love to smell it, and have had that pleasure. I couldn't imagine eating it. It's kind of like me in the swamp. I love the swamp. But I ain't eating no frog legs because they taste like the swamp. <laughs> Smelling it and eating it are two different things. Frog legs are, are wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's like chicken. It does actually because of, the, because of the texture of it. Uh, so his garments smell of the myrrh and the frankincense that he's been anointed with. With the, when he's when he's sitting it ready for the ready for the the marriage, and it says, "Out of the ivory palaces, strings have made you glad." And you, your King James says that whereby, but it really in the Hebrew it says strings. It's the music that is making them glad, the music, the joy. Out of ivory palaces, and it's it's a palace decorated with ivory. Uh, we still have that term that goes, you, know, you still hear that term, you know, he lives in the ivory palace, you know, it's that ivory tower, it's that decorated, uh, you know, above, above all other people's domicile type thing. You know, it's a place of status and it says the strings have made you glad. Jesus, you know, it appears that God likes music. I think he did. When you get into the word of God, it appears that God likes music. The picture of Satan before he fell was that he had horns and stuff embedded into his body and that he, that he made music just by what it, he did. His body was an instrument. His body was an instru musical instrument. Really? Yeah. You know, so it's amazing that God seems to have some desire for music. And, he, and we're told in the scriptures, make a joyful noise. He doesn't even necessarily want it to be perfect music. He just likes to have that music, that praise, that adoration. And we know what good music, you know, good music sounds, and each person has a different definition of what good music is. Uh, there are some classical, you know, things that are what good music is, but when it comes to music, everybody has their own thoughts of what music is good and what music is not so good. Uh, you know, there was a time when rock and roll was the devil's music, and you couldn't have anything good from rock and roll. Uh, 
Uh, but you go back even further. Uh, you know, a lot of what we sing is today's great old hymns. Mm -hmm. In their day, were considered, you know, racy. Well, not even racy, but they were considered they were considered too modern, too too contemporary. How can how can you bring the stuff that we sing in the you know on the everyday into the church? You know, so it's always been a problem. Music has always been a problem in the church. You know, we today's today's battle is between the old hymns and contemporary music. You know, contemporary worship. You know, it's becoming less and less, which means that we're ready to transition into the next step, whatever the next step is. Rapture. Um, you know, I'm sorry. Sounded good to me. I'm ready to go. Are you? If the next step of worship is, rapture. is, is okay. heaven, I am ready. That mm. <laughs> says the music has calmed you. Mm -hmm. Verse nine: King's daughters were among the honorable women. Upon your right hand did stand the queen in in gold of Ophir. Ophir is very precious gold. Very, very refined, very precious gold. She's really decked out then. She's decked out. She's decked out. The queen, the mother. All right? And one thing you always want to remember, when you're reading in the Old Testament, the queen is always the king's mother. It's not the wife. Wait, see the queen is always the king's mother. It's not his wife. The wife was not the king, uh, was not the queen. Reason being, he only had one mother. He might have had many wives. So only the queen, and we get, we still hear the term, the queen mother uh, out there. So the queen was always his mother. He's getting ready for his wedding. The queen is there. To present him. Now this one said how you talk about the right man. It says the right hand. Is that the same thing? The right mm -hmm. hand? Yeah. It says thou at the right hand. Yes. Hands. Yes, at the right hand of the person, the approved. The approved person. So here's the the assemblages of people, the daughters of the king and the queen are gathering together for the wedding. So the queen the queen is always the mother of in this time, in this time frame, oh, this time, yeah. in this time frame, and it was because of the multiple, multiple, you know, possible yeah. multiple wives, because it made it really easy. You, you, your queen was the mother, so it made it very easy. There wasn't this question of which of the queens are you talking about, or or which of the wives are you going to make the queen. It just says, okay, mom's, <laughs> mom's the queen. Well, I think you know how they the, the multiple wives. I got wonder if the Mormons got their wives. <laughs> So we're preparing, the wedding is being prepared. The wedding is being prepared as we're seeing here. And it says, verse 11, So shall the king, the king greatly desire your beauty, for he is the Lord and worship you him. And this is a, oh, I missed a section here, didn't I? I missed Chen. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget also your own people and your father's house. And this was a very important one. We didn't want to forget this one. The, the daughter getting ready for the marriage, separating herself from her own people and becoming a new person within that family. Just as the picture of the wedding is supposed to be, when the wife gets married, she separates herself from her family and becomes one with the with the husband. The husband pulls away from his family and becomes one with the wife. Unless they're all living in his castle. <laughs> well, even then, though, they were to start their own separate quarters. Uh, and in a Jewish wedding, that is what happened. You got engaged, and it was a year or two, year at least a year, if not more. And the husband was to go out. He was to build his own either house or room off of the parents' parents' house that was their place that was separate. And when that was all built, all set up, he started, you know, he got his business up and going, he would then go and kidnap the wife from her home. Oh, yeah. So he would go and, you know, and it was, she knew it was coming. She knew that sometime he was going to come for it. And I'm sure that the, the groom went to the father and said, tonight's the night I'm coming okay, right. for her so that you don't, yeah, you don't, don't have me arrested don't, yeah. when I break in. Yeah, don't cut uh, my head off. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't shoot me when I come into your house. 
not that they had guns at that time, but you know, you know the, you know, you know, and then he would come and he would snatch her away, take her back to his place, where all of his friends and her friends would gather up and they would have a party for one week long, and then they would consummate their marriage, and then he would start, in by Jewish tradition, a year-long honeymoon. For one year, he didn't work, wouldn't go to war or anything. The um, part about snatching the, the bride, maybe I'm overtired, but it just seems like such an aggressive, violent act. I mean, someone to be kidnapped, you know, uh, taken out of their, you know what I mean? No. Can I say something? Sure, absolutely. I, I'm just go ahead. The ladder. Huh? The ladder. This was back here, but it was a big deal to keep your lantern, the right. oil in it, the lit, the wick trim. Mm -hmm. So he would. So she could find him when he came. Well, excuse me. So in what you said, in what you said, it, it was a very, it was a violent snatching away. It was a, it was a, it was a grabbing her and taking her away, and it is a representation of the church being raptured from this world by the, by the bridegroom. Yeah, because it's a, and it's, it's, it's going to be bang, you're gone. Yeah. You know, he picks okay. you up and you're gone. So yes, you are right. Yes, you are right too. It's, yeah. It was expected because she knew it was coming. She didn't know exactly when it was coming. She didn't know whether it would be in the afternoon, in the middle of the night. She didn't know anything about when. And he literally snatched her up and took her away, put her on the horse and, or the donkey and took her, took her away. So it did have a, I mean, it wasn't mean, it's not a mean violence, no. it was. No, he's not pulling you know, her hair. He just grabbed hold of her and said, you're coming with me, and then the party would shift from, from, from her mom and dad's house into their new home, mm -hmm. where the party would last for seven days. It's one of those things I had not thought about, the, I would use the word kidnapping, but the oil and that stuff that things were familiar with, I hadn't really, you know, thought about, that's a, a, a it's a planned kidnapping. Well, a, right. Carrying over the threshold part. Of the well, that is where carrying over the threshold, you know, probably, part part came, came from was from this. Um, but yeah. this is also a picture of the church being yeah. raptured by oh, Jesus yeah. to into heaven, into His home that He is prepared. With him. Yes. That He is prepared where we will have a seven-year feast, wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will come back with him to this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period in victory to rule with him for a thousand years. So this gets you into eschatology. This whole picture of the wedding gets us into the end times. This is the strongest reason why I am somebody who believes in a pre-tribulation rapture. Before the tribulation happens is because of the Jewish picture of the wedding of seven days. Uh, because it is it fits that picture that is being talked about that we are taken we are snatched out of this earth to have a seven seven year period with him in a feast and then we come back as the as the bride of Christ and then and that's the reign of the, the millennial kingdom when when Jesus will reign for a, a thousand years with an iron scepter that per, will be a perfect environment. Nobody will commit sin during that time because he rules with an iron scepter. Now, we don't have to worry about sinning because we've got our glorified we're bodies sealed. and we're sealed. Those who've made it through the tribulation period will have a thousand years to live under a perfect world's condition. No Satan tempting them, no demons tempting them, and... He will rule with an iron scepter. The moment somebody thinks about sinning, he'll, he or somebody will be there saying, you're not doing this. Okay? Which is why at the end of a thousand years when Satan is released, he is able to get people who want to turn against God because they wanted to sin and have not been able to. And Satan will be saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to come back and we're going to rebel. And people will be wanting to rebel because they have been forced into obedience for a thousand years. Okay? Uh, so there will be a desire in some people, not all obviously, to sin. Well, the original sin, Satan was in the picture and, and created the um, temptation. And then for those thousand years, if Satan isn't here, what... If, 
Well, I guess because it's human nature. And they they will still have a sin right, nature. Right, right. I, I okay. answered my question. Yeah. And, and we won't have. Our sin nature will be taken away. We will be glorified. As I spoke it, it made sense. Yes. Uh -huh. Because remember, we... We as individuals have the pride of life, the yes. pride, the, 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 the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We can sin because we are fallen beings. We could sin without Satan being around or any demonic in interference because we in our nature want to sin. Okay. Uh, during the millennial kingdom, that will be forced down. There will be no habit of sinning by the time Satan is released. For a thousand years, people will be forced into obedience. Now, there will be those who are been forced into obedience, and they are ready to turn because they're so tired of being forced into obedience. And then there's others that are going to say, no, this has been fine. I, I like where we've been. But it will be their choice at that time. And there will be people that are born during that time and, oh, and everything. So... And it tells us that, you know, if you, if you only live to be 100, you're, you're considered a child. Uh, See, you're just <laughs> You ain't even 100 yet. All right. It says, Hearken, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. You know, incline your ear. Bend down to listen. Bend down to listen. Forget also your own family and your father's house. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty. For he is your Lord, worship you him. And I love this word desire. This word desire is greatly longs for you. To the point of lusting for. Okay. It is a very strong word for his desire for his bride. Jesus has a bride that he has bought. He's waiting for the day that he brings his bride into his presence greatly longing for his bride to be brought into his presence. And then it says, worship him, you know, worship him, and for he is your Lord. We are greatly looking for him, hopefully at the same point, you know, waiting for that, waiting for him to come. You know, this is the exciting thing as I see more and more of our world slipping into the end times, the days, yes. of, days like Noah, you know, it's, it's scary, it's, it's upsetting in one sense, but at the same time, it's something that is just so desired. Because the worse this world gets, the closer we are to the king coming and taking us, taking his bride home. This could very easily be the generation that ends up being raptured. Johnny, Shauna, that, well, us, well, we would be here. We could, any one of us could still be here. It, it, we are so close, and yet it could still be a while yet. You know, the Jewish calendar is, is still about 115 years away from 6,000. 6, right. 6, uh, so we may have a century left. I don't know. You know I'm not going to argue one way or the other, but it could be any moment. There is nothing that has to be done. I can't, picture, right. I can't picture the world going for another 100 years. I really can't. Things that, I can't imagine how evil things would be in a hundred years. And that's kind of scary too. If it's as bad as it is now and God's going to wait for a hundred years, man, it is going to be a terrible place to live. And I hope that I'm glad I won't be around for that. Well, I think it was, it's going to have to become so horrific in order for people to settle and take Well, it's anything, you know, it's right now we're in a place, anybody that would bring peace to this world. It's amazing that we were supposed to be in a peaceful world and there's wars everywhere. There's wars everywhere. Well, they're te not technically wars. They're battles and conflicts. But in any other generation, they would be called wars other than ours. But we are so at dis-ease right now that it's an amazing thought. We are so close. We are in a place where we, the economy may fall at any moment. You know, there, there's all kinds of people predicting the total collapse of our economy. Worldwide. Huh? Worldwide. Worldwide, not yeah, just... These aren't flakes. These aren't... Yeah, like, these, aren't, these aren't flaky, these are, you know, uh, conspiracy theorists. Right. These are strong, good are economists that know what they're talking about. We, our economy is on the brink of collapse. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been held up by being propped up artificially. 
the pyramid scam. It's, it's, it is sitting there, and the scriptures tell us in Revelation that the economy is going to fall apart. It says that a, a loaf of bread will buy a bag of gold. It's not a bag of gold buying a loaf of bread. The, the, the food staple is, the, is what buys. You know, because you can't eat gold, you can't eat silver. It is going to be that bad when this hits. When the economy falls, it is going to be a devastating thing. And people, and you hear people will invest in gold and all of this. Well, gold is not going to be what's the standard out there. You invest in flour. Yeah, invest in flour <laughs> and, and the oil and, and the, everything else that goes along with it. Uh, but you know. Valuable commodities will become what the standard is for the world. The, the money in the economic system will mean nothing. The, the bread will be valuable. The wheat will be valuable. Ammunition would probably be valuable because it gets you the stuff that you, or protects you, protects what you do have. You know, the value will be in things that we're not even thinking about right now being a value. I can't get the right ratio in my head right, but right off the get-go you've got whether we're going to be involved in the beginnings of this or not, I don't know. And I don't think anybody else does either. But right off the get-go, a big chunk of your ocean's going to be destroyed. Your growing is trees and grasses. Trees and grass, that's your bread and your fruit right there, and your nuts. And everything else that grows just about as grass, so it's going to be destroyed. And weather cycles. And yeah. Fires. And, it, and this is and this is what we're looking at. We are looking at that destruction. I I am one that believes that the tribulation does not start at the beginning parts of Revelation. I believe we are in the beginning part of Revelation currently. You know, and that the tribulation a, uh, starts further in than we normally think it. I, I believe this is a safe enough place to be in agreement with that. I do honestly believe we're in the end times, and I don't mean that last, no. Yeah. But absolutely, um, I believe when uh, that last prophetic thing happened, and now there is not one prophetic thing left, except for the our life, this life cycle, and for it to happen. And we're there. The temple. And the thing... The thing that is so striking to me is people's hearts. Yeah. And, and what we do to each other and how hardened, you know, that even I've become, it's scary. You know, things like when Job said the thing I feared the most or the thing that I hated, Paul said it. You know, um, my goodness. Well, we, we, we are here. We are at the end times. I believe we're already in the sealed judgments. I personally believe we're already in the sealed judgments uh, because I believe the tribulation starts further in. And if you read the first couple sealed judgments, you see what's going on in our world. Right. Not Very clearly. Right. And that's what I, my thought on yeah. it. And I'm not a theologian or somebody wants to really debate it. Oh, I'm never debated, but well, this is what I believe. But you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. it's what I believe. And it's, only, it's what I'm seeing with my eyes. Yes. And the Lord told me in his word that he will give us, he will give me eyes to see yep. and ears to hear what the Lord saying. And the most important thing we want to think of as we discuss this is not to create fear, not to get, create panic, because God will give us the grace to go through whatever it is he wants us to go through. Yeah. But he does want us to be awake. He wants us to be open. He wants us to see what's coming. When the economy crashes, which will be one of the, one of the seals, he does not want us to be blinded by it. He does not want us to be panicked by it. He gives us what we need when we need it. We read things like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and people were given the grace to go through the martyrdom when they needed. The classic example from Corey Tenboom, she's riding in, a, in the train with her, going on the train with her dad, with her dad, and, he, and she's worried about you know things, and he goes worried about things in the future, and he goes, "When do I give you the ticket for the conductor?" When, right before the conductor comes, he goes, "God will do the same for you." He will give you what you need when you need it. And this is where we say, you know, will I be able to stand? Would I be willing to die for God? 
I have no idea until I'm standing there in front of the, the guns or the guillotine or the electric chair or what, the, the gallows or the burning, you know, you know, whatever it is that will come, I don't know that I will have that grace until I'm standing there needing the grace. Or the okay. Lamborghini. Huh? Or the Lamborghini to crash. Yeah, the Lamborghini to crash. And I don't think that grace is something, you know, where the word says you have not because you ask not. I, I think it's just poured out like Daniel in the lion's den. When it's needed. Right. It's when it's needed. When, May, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood, they going, we're going to honor God. They fully expected to burn in that furnace. Mm -hmm. yeah. They told Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, but whether he does or not, we will not worship the idol. They fully expected to die that day in the furnace. I'm sure they did not expect to go in that furnace and be rescued. God gave them the grace to be rescued. Okay, God gave the grace to the children of Israel to go through the Red Sea in a picture of baptism and coming out of the other side. In, in life, he gave them. He gave the pictures to. He gave David the the standing to defeat Goliath. He allowed Peter to step out of the boat and walk on water. Yeah. Yeah. When it made no sense to come out of the boat and walk on water. Okay. All, somebody, do you need a do you need a shower? <laughs> so we never know exactly what it is that we're doing. Sometimes we will say we will come across, and God will do the strangest things so that he can reach us or somebody else by his power, by doing something that is totally unexpected. All right, so God is desiring the beauty of his bride. Jesus is desiring, he sees us as beautiful. He's desiring his bride. For anybody that's ever gone through the marriage ser service as a, as a man looking at his bride coming down the, the, the walkway, I don't think us girls. You girls won't know. Girls you girls won't know bride. what that is like. You but know. we get to be the bride. You get to be the bride. You get to be the beauty that the that 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 they look on and say, "Wow, <laughs> you know, this is my my future wife, my wife coming down yeah, this aisle." Yeah, but you get to do that too this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get to be part yeah. of that this time. They it'll be Jesus. Be it'll be Jesus down there looking at right. looking at it. You know. And he's there ready for his bride that he's desiring. And he's always asking us to look at him as, our, as the Lord and, 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 and receive him in worship. You know, very beautiful. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. He is one that all want to worship. All want to worship. Even the rich are wanting the person, his favor the favor of this, of this wedding. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of, of rod gold. This is talking about how we're clothed. We're clothed in Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. When Jesus looks, looks back at his bride, he's going to see his righteousness. He's going to see this is, the, this is the completion of him. Adam needed a helpmate to be his completion. In one sense, we're the bride of Christ. Yeah. We're going to be the completion of Christ. He bought us. He paid for us so that he could have this completion outside of himself. And to think that he needs us and that he wants us. He wants us. That's an amazing thing is that he not wants he us. Need, but he needs not, he wants. needs not, but he wants us. He wants, he desires. And See, that's pretty, I haven't thought about that. A great desire, a great desire for us. So much desire that he came to this earth to offer himself to buy us. That's how much desire he has for us. When he went to the cross, he's going, I'm going to the cross. I am going there. And this is why I have so much trouble during this time of year when, when they start talking about the Garden of Gethsemane and how, how Jesus was fearful of the cross. I don't buy it. I never have bought it. That cup was because he was being Satan was trying to keep him from the cross and trying to kill him in the garden. I'm absolutely sure of that. That's God that Satan was trying to kill him. He sweat drops of blood. He was dying in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus' prayer saying, God, if you're changed the plan and you want me to die in the garden, I will drink of that cup. But 
nevertheless, I want to go to the cross like our plan was. But if you want me to die in the garden, I'll do that. If that's, the, if that's your plan, I will do that. But I, wanted to go to the, I want to go to the cross and buy my bride. And the perfect grace that was poured out in grace, you know, to be able to do that. Yep. Because it's, he could not have feared the cross. Could not have. Fear is a sin. Right. To fear something is a sin. He could not have feared the cross. And usually at this time of the year, you hear all these beautiful preachers teaching, and a lot of them good teachers, saying about how it's natural to fear and it's okay because, look, Jesus was afraid. I don't, I've never bought it. I, have, I believe that fear is a sin. I have always believed that fear is a sin. And I have never been able to accept that he feared the cross in the garden. And they go, well, he was human. Well, then he sinned. And he didn't sin. And he's never sinned. So it, the cup could not have been the cross. The cup was the fact that his body, sweating drops of blood, was being crushed and killed in, by, in, in the garden. Well, I Satan trying to keep him out. He wasn't sinned yet. He hadn't become sin yet. No, I'm not saying he had become sin, but sin. Just, you know, the, what was, well, what he was taking. He knew everything he was going right. to take, but Satan knew that he had to go to the cross. Right. Satan's whole goal was to keep him from the cross. Right. And I am absolutely, and you know, I won't argue this with anybody, you know, other than to discuss it with them. But I truly believe Satan was saying, I only have, I only have hours to keep this man right. from the cross. Oh, I, believe I am going to kill him in this garden. Yeah. And that is when he said, Father, you know, if, if this is the cup you want me to drink, I'll drink it. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but this is not really what we thought. You know, this was not our plan in, in, in the time, you know, from the beginning of time. But if I'm going to die here and that's what you want, then I'll drink this cup. And then, I've never thought about what you just you said about, you know, during Easter, uh, where I've heard that my whole life, mm -hmm. that Christ was afraid. Yep. And about the sweating the blood from fear. That I never believed. Yeah. You know, that didn't ring true to my spirit. But, like, the fear part, uh, Lord, I'm going to study it out. I don't believe he was afraid. I don't. I've never no, believed I it. I don't believe he yeah. was afraid. No, because he didn't have to be afraid. But had, it's why he came. It's why he came. Right. So, and I've got pastors I truly respect that don't, that will teach. I've got one, teach, one I know one pastor who teaches that fear, that fear is a sin, but then he teaches that Jesus was afraid of, that, right. that fear of the cross was why he, what Gethsemane was all about. It, well, yeah, <laughs> see, that's what I've heard in church that had been taught. Uh, most of my life, mm -hmm. and I, I had never given it any real solid thought about really what they were saying. I just, I wasn't afraid, and, but didn't challenge. Yeah. Because it all comes down to what the cup is. Right. That whole section of Gethsemane matters what the cup is. And most people say it has to be the cross because that was the next big thing, you know, the punishment and the cross was the next thing he entered. And I just, I've never been able to buy it, never have bought it. And when you start looking into the results of sweating blood, it means that you're under so much pressure and so much uh, tension that your body is being killed. And if you look it up, it, that's what it's all about. Yeah, there's a medical condition. There's a medical condition yeah. where you sweat blood because you're under so much stress. And I, that's why I totally believe Satan was trying to kill him in the garden. He was close to death in the garden. Well, he's tried to kill him since before. Well, he was trying to kill him the whole... Yeah. This was his last chance. Yeah, it definitely This was, was Satan's last yeah. chance to keep him away from the cross. And he's so arrogant, you know he, he just had to believe he was going to... Get him killed. Get him. Yep. And that's why, you know, and I just bring that up because you're going to hear, especially those of you that have encouraged, listen to the Christian radio, you're going to hear many pastors. I've already heard this the last couple weeks, you know, all about how the Gethsemane was the fear of the cross and all of this. And so I just want to bring that up. I mean, you don't have to buy what I'm saying, but I just, I am very strongly, you know, convicted from my studies, from, from talking to God when I, as a teenager, that the cross is not the cup. 
You know, now what, you might argue with what the, what the cup is, but I truly believe that Satan was trying to kill him in the garden, and Jesus was saying, Father, if you've changed the, basically saying, Father, if you've changed the plan since I came to earth, I will take this cup, this cup and die here. I don't know how that's going to get, our, get, our, get my bride bought, but I will take this cup here if that's what you want. daughter, as a, as a woman, you know, hearing that being taught about Christ, my Lord, my King of Kings, being afraid was something that I might not have understood it, maybe it was the, and I, I have to believe it was the Holy Spirit, just saying no, it's not correct. Yeah. Even though I didn't know how to answer it or fully understood or how to prove that. Yeah. Revelation or understanding, whatever you want to use. Father God, thank you so much that you put that in my spirit when I was a kid. That my Jesus is in yep. And I had the same thing as a teenager. I didn't. I didn't get this answer until my twenties, and I had years, you know, a, a decade, pretty close to a decade, that I was trying to figure out what what was this cup because I never bought that he was afraid of the cross. It just, I had that same check in my spirit that there was absolutely no way that the cup was the cross. And I didn't know what the answer was until my 20s when, when a pastor taught the same exact lesson that I just gave, that it was that he was being killed in the garden. And I, and I know I've talked with other pastors that don't agree with me, and that's fine. That's between them and God. I don't care. It ain't going to keep you out of heaven. Yeah, it's not going to keep me out of heaven. It's not going to keep them out of heaven. Uh, but I have a very strong opinion about this because it is one that it leads people down the wrong path when you try to say Jesus was afraid of the cross. It makes a beautiful lesson of, oh, if you're afraid, just it's not a big problem because Jesus was afraid. Only problem is I don't think he was afraid. Well, so. even in the movies, they don't feel he's afraid. Yeah. So. My soul may have been weak and not able to do, you know, but not, not afraid. Yeah. But he did carry the cross. After the beating he took, he should have dropped out cold, caught mm-hmm. unconscious. And he carried that cross. Right. Which is amazing that he, that his body took so much pain. But remember, he could not have died up, up to that point anyway. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much, how much they beat him and, and destroyed his body, he could not have died because he had no sin up till that point. And I don't think we can even... The wages of sin is... Stuff yeah. was going on even on a cellular level. Yeah. Because he did not have the degenerative degenerative sin in his body. He did not have he he had never made a sin. The wages of sin is death. Okay. It wasn't until he was on the cross and that he became sin for us that he could die. Because that when he became sin, he literally became sin, and at that point death could come upon him. And that's unfathomable. The pain that he would have taken without becoming sin and how long he could have stayed on that cross without becoming sin and the pain that his body would have endured during all of that. He became sin and actually it was a grace gift from God that he became sin that he could die to pay the sin. So it was grace. It goes back to this whole thing of pouring grace into into him and being full of grace. If y'all don't mind, I want to finish this tonight. <laughs> okay. The daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is, is of rod gold. He's starting to talk about the gown of the bride. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. And it talks about this being variegated, different colors, and and just the beauty of it. And and we think about the, the beauty of, of garments that have had needlework and with the colors, you know, embroidered into them the virgins her companions that follow her shall be brought unto you and this talks about very much this is where we get the idea of bridesmaids going down the down with the bride or in the, you know in our case we huh in this case virgins this could also be talking about israel because israel remember israel is is declared to be god's wife the father's wife all right. Uh, okay. Now, this takes us into a whole realm. Is Israel is the father's wife. The son gets married to the bride, which is the Christians, and we are brought into the family of Israel 
through the marriage to the son. So it's a quite an interesting picture of how the family comes together. And remember, because we're always said that we are engrafted yes. into Israel. Okay, so this is two different pictures. This is the wedding picture of us coming into the family. There's also been the engrafting of the Christian, the Gentiles, into the root of the olive tree. The olive tree represents Israel. You get engrafted into the root of the olive tree, and the olive tree is the only tree that changes the branch that is engrafted into it to be an olive branch. Wait, see there? <laughs> the olive tree is the only tree that when you engraft a branch into it, it changes the branch into an olive branch. Oh, so you could take an apple and... And engraft it into an olive tree at the and root, and, and it will become an, an olive. It will become an olive branch. Okay. Into the root, because that's how you... That's also... you. Every other tree you engraft up above. Right. And an olive tree you don't engraft above. You engraft into the root. Now, if you know anything about this, people have taken branches, you know, an apple, and, and plugged it into a pear or a plum tree. And it still produces apples. They taste a lot like a pear or a plum because they take the roots and nutrients from a different tree, but you still get an apple. A, a funny flavored apple, but you get an apple. Uh, so, but this, again, is a picture of a bride, of wedding, bringing us into the relationship with Israel. Lloyd had that tree that had either five or seven, and I think it's seven different kinds of apples. And every one of those apples looked different, tasted slightly different, but each one of them were apples. Mm -hmm. On the same, on the same tree. On the same yeah. tree, and they all stayed what that lamb had been before it was right. erected. Right, and that's how most, most are, but all of it is different. Number one, you have to engraft at the root, which then changes the whole branch. And it's an amazing thing that God says that we are engrafted into it. We become, we become Israel. Not that we replace Israel. We want to be careful of that. There's this idea of replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. God's done with Israel. That is, that is completely unbiblical. But we are engrafted into Israel, and we become Israelites by adoption by being engrafted into the root. We are considered to be spiritually Israel. Mm -hmm. Not that we replace the Israelites, right. but that we become just like them as far as God's concerned. And it's this is a picture of it through marriage that we're seeing in this picture. Um, well, I'm gonna, I have it on my heart, so please pray that uh, God will use this. David, this kind of thing is an interest to him. And I think it would, I'm going to share this with him, Mom, about the olive root. Um, but it has to be in the root to make it. Right, but I just want to share that. And that's what I found in the studies, because I heard it in a message, and I've checked it out. I mean, I, obviously I haven't tried it, because I don't have any olive trees in my life to it plug it into. The they do grow the root. Root. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 15. <laughs> With gladness and joy, joying shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. So this is again the the wedding the wedding party coming together, uh, rejoicing. The virgins coming with the bride. Um, it could be anything from the angels, and it could just be part of the picture of the wedding that, that's bringing bringing in. But gladness and rejoicing will be the wedding. The wedding will be with gladness and rejoicing. Seven year feast in heaven. For the bride, with the bridegroom, being observed by the served by the angels. You know, when you want to talk about food in heaven, there's definitely going to be food in heaven because there's going to be a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, just won't be fattening anymore. You can eat you can eat all those pies and cakes that you couldn't eat here and not get fat. You'll be able to eat them in heaven and not get fat. No diabetes to worry about, nothing. <laughs> Instead of your fathers shall be children whom you may make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. Jesus will be exalted. He'll be able to, he'll be able to have his children. They'll be made into princes and, and rulers 
and his name will be exalted forever. Now, this is an amazing thought. Ex- forever he will be exalted. He'll be lifted up. He will be. He, sh- thy father shall be your children, and whom you, sh- whom you will make princes. Now, God, we are his children. Okay. Being made into rulers. If I said something different, I didn't mean it. All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Any comments before we close in prayer? Oh, yeah. Move Annie to the prayer list. Uh, praise praise. list. Yep. She, she's no longer limping and in the hospital. Yeah, take me off. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this beautiful picture of your marriage to the to the to us as your children and, and your bride and we thank you lord and we thank you for the the way that you will be lifted up and praised we ask that you go with us this week and give us great blessings give us opportunities to share you with others in jesus name amen